It was a little over 10 years ago that a prominent religious research group called the Barna Research Group released an extensive study done about the perception of people who were not considering themselves Christians or churchgoers. They interview and solicit information from thousands upon thousands of people all over the United States. And as I said, over 10 years ago, they came out with the results. The top three perceptions of Christians by non-Christians in America were, number one, they are judgmental. Number two, they are hypocritical. And number three, they are anti the LGBT community. Does that sound about right to you in terms of your experience, churchgoer, most of you in the room here? Are the majority of the Christians you have experienced hypocritical, judgmental, and particularly toward a certain community of people? This week I heard some suggest that these qualities are even worse in the church not just from the perception of those outside of the church. That Christians are even more judgmental and hypocritical toward each other about how you should worship, about what considers good or bad preaching, about the opinions of raising your children, about what's considered modest clothing and attire, about all kinds of things like this, and that churches have split over these judgmental and strong-held opinions. So whether or not this has been your experience in the church, or again, welcome visitors, those of you outside of the church, I would like you to be aware that this is the perception of the people in the world that we live here in the United States of America. Our mission as a church is to glorify Jesus Christ by making disciples of all the nations But in this nation, there's a good chance that you will have resistance to making disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, people who want to embrace the wonderful message and teaching and way of Jesus because of a preconceived idea or experience or baggage they have with judgmental, hypocritical, and anti-LGBT Christians. It seems like almost every week you and I will probably turn on the news or hear some sort of announcement that a company or business is coming to some sort of new non-discrimination policy about how they will not tolerate people who pass judgments on others based on their race, ethnicity, gender identity, or religion. Does that sound familiar to you? I heard one yesterday from one of our elders texting me about Airbnb's new policy of non-discrimination if you want to use Airbnb, FYI for Airbnbers. So should we be surprised that Christians in America have seen their churches steadily declining in attendance over these past 10 to 20 years? If the perception of the people outside of the churches, these are a bunch of judgmental, hypocritical, anti-LGBT people. I bring this up because I want you to sense the timeliness of the matter of judgmentalism I want you to feel the weight and the gravity of the issues that we're talking about, not just for the greater world, but for our church. 
My hope and prayer is that our perspective as a church is that hopefully we're a little bit more optimistic about ourselves to some degree, but maybe we're not the best judge, so we might need outsiders to give us some feedback on this. But my general experience of being around you, Embassy Church, is not one to just lash out on you and say, repent, you guys are awful, and you're so judgmental, and you're always critical of me, and that's not been my experience, praise God. I'm not saying that this means we're immune from this or that this is not some issue that we too should be thinking through deeply. I have heard confessions from several members of this church from time to time, on and off, of the struggles they have had by feeling judged or being judged and not being understood. Friends, this is a deep problem, issue, that all of us should wrestle with in our own hearts. And my hope is that you will see me not being judgmental of all of us, but hopefully walking us to this wonderful teaching of Jesus and applying it pastorally. So let's do that. How should we respond in the cultural moment of the world we live in? Well, let's open up a book that's over 2,000 years old or about 2,000 years old, the Gospel of Matthew, written shortly after Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. According to tradition, one of his followers, Matthew, recorded and put together and edited a collection of Jesus' teachings, and we're in one of the largest sections of Jesus' teaching. It's his most famous. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. So if you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, on page 812, When I refer to the chapter numbers, that's the bigger numbers, and then the verse numbers are the smaller numbers. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6 today in the next section of the Sermon on the Mount. Some of you, as you're turning, may be wondering, wait, we didn't finish Matthew chapter 6, and you did not preach about not worrying, and I don't want you to worry about it, because actually... The first sermon in this whole series was done by one of our elders, Kenny, and he did an excellent job on Matthew 6 and not worrying. And he told me recently that he was struggling with worry, and I said, just go preach yourself that message. It was good. And he said, okay. So you can find that online. We have, in fact, covered Matthew 6 all the way through in the recent months. So please don't judge me too hard if I skipped over that passage. Let's read the passage, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Judge not, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. In this passage, Jesus is teaching his disciples about judgmentalism, hypocrisy, and although it may not seem like it at first, I want to make the case that in verse 6, he gives us a helpful word for how to engage people in the LGBT community in particular and people that would find themselves in communities like it. In other words, today's message 
is going to challenge Embassy Church first to turn, repent. The word repent means to turn. And it doesn't always need to be, you know, yelled and shouted out. It could just be encouraged. And I want to gently and strongly encourage us to repent of condemnation first. Second, repent of acting like we're better than other people. And third, repent of the unloving attitudes and actions towards certain groups of people outside the church. And in particular, I'm going to apply it to the LGBT community because apparently we're not very good at that as a nation of Christians. So first, repent of condemning others. I see this in verses 1 and 2. Hopefully you do as well. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This is one of the best-known Bible verses. And unfortunately, anytime you come across one of the better-known Bible verses, they often become one of the least understood Bible verses. And I think this is quite the case today. Although it's probably one of the favorite verses of non-Christians to quote two Christians I don't know if we're using it the way we probably should. So let's think about this. What does it mean to judge not, lest you too be judged, as Jesus says? Does this mean that you should never disagree with people? That you are never allowed to say that someone or something is wrong or sinful, and to do so would be judgmental? This is often how the verse is used, if you've heard it used in your circles in life, especially by people outside the church telling Christians, stop judging me about my sinful behaviors. Somebody is doing something that is hurting themselves, destroying their lives and the people around them, and a loving person could come and maybe very gently try and encourage them to choose a different path. And they say, stop judging me. Didn't your follower or teacher, rabbi, master, Lord, Jesus, didn't he say something about not judging? Yeah, stop doing that. And a lot of times it seems as if what they're trying to say is just leave me alone. I want to do what I want to do and I don't care if it hurts other people. I don't think that's what Jesus means. Hopefully that's not hard for you to think about either. Sometimes it's loving, isn't it? to encourage people not to harm themselves and others. Sometimes that's necessary to call the police or intervene in a destructive situation. So what is Jesus saying? That we're never supposed to confront? No. But how can we know? Oftentimes when we get in these conversations, especially with people outside of the church, we say, well, maybe that's your interpretation of Jesus, and I've got my interpretation of Jesus. And so I want to suggest five reasons for all of us to see from Jesus himself and then the greater study of the Bible that what he's talking about is condemnation of other people. He is not forbidding the making of judgments on certain matters or even certain people. In other words, he's telling his disciples to repent of a critical spirit, a condemning heart that attacks not just what's happening that is wrong, but the person and the character of the person where you're slandering them. I think this is what Jesus is getting at, and I want to give you five reasons to hopefully help you see very plainly. These aren't, I think, going to be too challenging to see, but just to build the case, to help you understand how to study the Bible, I'm going to show you how to work from concentric circles. So here you have a short little phrase, judge not. So we're going to start with the word, then the paragraph, then the chapter, 
then the whole book of Matthew, and then the rest of the New Testament. I'm not overviewing all those things. I'm showing you that if you start with the concentric circles and see the context of judgment, you'll hopefully start to understand it better. And it's on the basis of that that I'm giving you the interpretation. So let me, let me walk you through that first. The word judge in the Greek language is krino or krino. It's very similar to the way our English word judge has multiple meanings. Think for a moment about the various ways you will use the word judge in the English language. I could be talking about the recent news of the Supreme Court justice that was appointed and say Trump appointed Brett Kavanaugh to the next Supreme Court judge. Or I could be talking about watching America's Got Talent with my children and say Simon Cowell is our favorite judge. Two different things, right? Not the same kind of judge, but same word. You could ask me a question about whether or not I approve or disapprove of Trump's pick for the Supreme Court. And I could say, guess what? I actually don't know anything about Brett Kavanaugh at all, so I would not be the best judge of the decision. The Greek word has similar ideas. Finally, we could tell our kids that them playing outside in the mud today with all of their nice church clothes was a bad use of judgment. And this is what I mean by when you study this word, you could probably find 10 or 11 different nuances in the original language. Hopefully just showing you the English equivalent gives you a sense for what I mean. So how are we going to understand what it means? And why am I suggesting you that in this context, he means condemn? Let's move to the next concentric circle. We've looked at the word. Let's look at the paragraph. How does Jesus use the word in the context? Well, he's talking about the way that you judge will be judged upon you. It sounds very similar, I think, to what you'll find later. Look at the paragraph in verse 12, and you'll hear what is often called the golden rule. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, Lord willing, we'll look at that passage in two weeks, but for now, I want you to notice that verse 12 begins with the word so. It could also be translated as therefore, meaning that the train of thought from verses 1 through 11 has a similar idea or concept, and so therefore, let's let our lives be filled with treating others the way we would want to be treated, meaning we should understand the judgment he's talking about as doing something that other people would want us to do to them, and so that doesn't necessarily answer the situation, but it helps give you the bigger context. But what I think it does do is help us see that when we put that big idea in the forefront of our minds, that Jesus is summing up his teaching and saying that the golden rule should be a good, important standard, that it doesn't mean that we can't ever confront somebody. Condemning somebody, though, often leads to you getting judgment back. Somebody gets defensive and they're going to give you the same standard. Oh, that's interesting. I was thinking about the same thing with you. Have you ever had those conversations? Even there's times when we are trying to confront somebody in a loving way and somebody says, well, your profanity mouth is just bothering me and I think you should repent. And somebody says, well, your gossip problem about my profanity problem. And you see what I'm saying? Like, this is what Jesus is talking about. When we have oftentimes an angry and condemning spirit, it leads to defensiveness and not actually helping people. And so who actually wants somebody to be angry and condemn us and judge us for things? 
Very few of us. I mean, we struggle to just let loving confrontation come. So the kind of judging Jesus is talking about is not saying that we should never confront somebody. And this is made obvious again by the paragraph. Look at verse 5 of chapter 7. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Does it seem like Jesus is saying, don't ever take out specks? Don't ever be concerned about the other people around you and what's going on and how you can help them. He's saying, no, I'm going to teach you how to help people. So this should eliminate the idea that we should never talk to other people about some of their faults or failures. Jesus is saying, no, you should do that, but here's how you do it. And we'll talk about that in the next point. But the paragraph should give you the concept for what's going on. Love unto others as you would have them love you and do so in such a way where you're trying to help them, not hurt them, and then hopefully they will not want to repay you with a defensive, angry, judgmental spirit back, but one of openness and receptivity. So thirdly, let's look at the rest of the chapter to notice that Jesus certainly could not mean that we should never make any judgments on people whatsoever, that that would be a way too simplistic way to read this passage. Look at verses 15 to 20. Beware of false prophets, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. The whole section that I just read to you makes no sense if you're not supposed to observe things going on, make discernments, and say, this is not good. This is dangerous. This is hurting people. This, this is good. This is good teaching. False prophet, healthy, helpful teaching. You can make those judgments of me. You do it every week. You keep coming back, some of you, so I don't know why you would abuse yourself. You're free to not come back. Nobody's making you come here. So the point is, is there are times where it is wise and helpful and good, and Jesus wants us to make mention of false teachers, and so therefore I will not apologize if there are times, which I have done, where I will tell you, please beware of prosperity preachers like Joel Osteen or Joyce Meyer or Creflo Dollar or T.D. Jakes. They would be what a category of these kind of false teachers Jesus is telling you to beware of. How do you know? Look at the fruits of their ministries. Look at the fruits of their lives. I'm not saying I know all of them in and out, but the basic observation is that people who are asking poor people to buy them jet planes for billions of dollars are not loving. I don't know what your judgment is, but mine is that's, that's evil. So we are not afraid to talk about, at times, making judgments on obvious evil fruits. Look at the tree. That's a diseased tree. Those ministries are full of abuse of people who are already down, and their teaching kicks them while they're down. And I cannot tolerate it as a pastor to think about me doing that to people anywhere. They're preying on the weak and desperate, and instead of helping them out of their poverty, they ask them to give more of their limited finances so that they can live in luxury because God promises they will then become rich one day when they give to them. That's the basic premise of the prosperity gospel teaching. 
I don't think Jesus has any problem with us warning and even making judgments about things like that. They may look nice, by the way, as we will see in a few weeks. These false teachers may look nice and cuddly, and they may say true things. That's why Jesus says they're like sheep, but it, they're in sheep's clothing, and they're actually ravenous wolves on the inside, tearing up people's lives. And so hopefully people will love you enough to at times warn you if you're in that kind of dangerous situation. So the chapter, as you look at that concentric circle, I think Jesus is quite clear that judging is not saying that you can't ever pronounce any judgments on what's good or bad and what's harmful for people. Number four, the next concentric circle is the gospel of Matthew more broadly. Jesus is going to give another teaching, and I want you to try and think about judge not. Hey, stop judging me. And then this teaching. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. I'm not going to teach a whole teaching on that, but hopefully you get the basic idea. Jesus does not say that if you have been sinned against and hurt in the church, he's talking about friendships and relationships here in this church. If somebody does that to you, it is not wrong for you to go tell them their fault. We need to reconcile. We need to work this thing out. That's the whole point of these steps for how to work something out when somebody sins against you in the church. So Matthew 18 should help you see that in the church, lovingly confronting others when they sin against us is right. And the more you zoom out, you realize that's actually what we see throughout the New Testament. So for example, the last concentric circle, the broader teaching of the New Testament, consider a few of these passages, 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, I did not mean the sexually immoral that live in the world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then, you would have to go out of the whole world. But now I'm writing you not to associate with anybody who bears the name of brother, who's calling themselves a Christian but is living this way, and they're guilty of a sexual immorality or greed or idolatry or reviling or drunkard or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging those outside of the church? Is it not those inside of the church whom you are to judge? And this is the same word Jesus uses about judge not. Aren't those inside the church those whom you are to judge? God will judge those outside, and so you should purge the evil person among you. If you've never read this passage of Scripture or this chapter, just for context, he's talking about a man who is actively and knowingly having relations with his stepmom. And he says, that's not even condoned among society. Like, not even the non-Christians think that that's okay, but you guys are allowing that to just continue to go on in your own church. And he's saying, that's a problem. And so just in, for the sake of context, that's what these words are referring to. Similarly, Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, but keep watch on yourself lest you too may be tempted. 
And probably the most important New Testament passage as you do these concentric circles and you look for other teachings that try and help you understand Jesus's is actually the one that Sheena read to us earlier in the service. Jesus's half-brother, James, is who we believe wrote the letter of James. And he said, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. And what I want you to notice is that James is giving you an interpretation of Jesus. He's saying that slander and speaking evil about people is being paired up with judging. And the reason I say that is because most of James' letter, if you study the whole letter, is commentary on the Sermon on the Mount we've been studying through. So it's, it's a, a very, I think, valid and good point to say, hey, Jesus' half-brother might have a better interpretation than you when you say, hey, don't judge me. And the point James is making is that when we do this, when we slander people and we condemn them the way Jesus is forbidding, we are putting ourselves in the place of God. And we are saying that we are God and that we know people's hearts, we know their, their motives, and we have the determination of every part of their character. And he's saying, that's not true. You should be very slow to do something like that. Do not judge your neighbor like that. Do not speak evil about them. And I think that's the big clue for hopefully wrapping up this first point, is that Jesus is telling us to turn away from a judgmental, critical spirit, and I would use the word condemnation, as condemning somebody's not just actions, but the very core of who they are, and saying that they're lesser or something of lacking of value or dignity or, or any of, of that such. So, what should we do instead and that's where I think we get to our second point. If we're repenting of condemning others, how do we do that? Like practically, what's, what's the takeaways for us today? And I think Jesus' second point in this teaching is very instructive. So let's repent of acting like we're better than others. If we do that, then we will probably not be condemning other people. And that's really, I think, the essence of his teaching in verses 3 through 5 of chapter 7. So, let me read it one more time. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? And if at any point you giggle or laugh, like, that's okay. I think Jesus is trying to be ridiculous here and humorous. How can you say to your brother, hey, brother, hey, I, I see a little piece of sawdust in your eye. And then you don't see you've got a telephone pole in your own eye, you're a hypocrite. Take the telephone pole, the big log, the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It's a simple teaching, actually, but it's also practical and profound. Hopefully, the point is obvious to you. When we have a condemning spirit, we look at other people as if we're better than them. We look down on them. When we are doing the judging that Jesus is talking about that is condemning, this is often the heart of the problem. We think that our sins, this is the whole point of the, the speck and the plank, our sins are light, but other people's sins are heavy. Our sins are not that big of a deal. Our struggles, well, yes, of course, I've got all of my reasons and justifications for why I have these struggles, but you, how can you dare do that? And then we look down on them, even though our sins are right in front of our face. So Jesus is telling us that we are hypocrites if we do not have the humility to see our own sin and only can find the faults 
and failures of other people, even if they're small faults and failures. Now remember, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount for those of you that have been coming with us, and the word hypocrite is not often what we think it means. It's actually just the word actor or actress that Jesus is using. So he's saying, quit pretending. Who do you think you are? You are not God. You don't know people's hearts. Your sins, don't you know what they are? Quit acting like an actor or actress like they're not there. That's, that's the whole point of you hypocrite. In humility, however, we should admit that all of us have faults and failures and sins. We should look at the logs in our own eye and then see our brother and sister in light of our own sin as we go and approach them in loving help, which Jesus does encourage us to do. I think that there's just scores of lessons, but I'm going to give you a few questions for you to ponder on for your own life, for this community, and hopefully for the good of our mission in the world. First, do you ever see other people's struggles and sins as more gross or ugly than your sins and struggles? Don't you realize, friends, that I have a propensity because of my family background and my DNA and whatever else that's going on that makes me who I am as I was born into this world, a, a trajectory towards certain proclivity to sins, right? And some of you look at my sin struggles and you're like, what's your problem? And others of us will look and say, well, what's your problem? I don't have that. That's easy. And as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, we've covered so many different topics that I'm sure at some point you've been like, oh, ah, dagger, <laughs> got me there. And other times you're like, yeah, I, I haven't really struggled with that very much. So the question is, how do you see others' sin struggles? Are they more ugly than yours? Secondly, do you ever look down on other people because of their small faults, but you allow room for great faults in your own life? I'm not sure this is the main point of what Jesus is trying to say, that there's, you know, these big sins and these little ones, but there does seem to be a sense of like, hey, you're looking at something that's kind of minor when there's actually a big thing going on in your own life. How well are you at doing at assessing the severity of your own shortcomings? Number three, parents and spouses in particular People that are living in a close proximity, even if you're not married or have children, but maybe you've got roommates, this one is particularly for those people. If you're living by yourself, good for you. Yeah. Do you spend more time getting frustrated with the sins of those around you in your living environment, always seeing it before your eyes, always complaining and like, oh my gosh, this is driving me crazy? Or are you frustrated with your sins? and maybe even your frustration over them. Number four. Do you tend to justify yourself and make all kinds of excuses about your flaws and faults, but not give other people very much room? And lastly, number five. Do you remember all of the sins that God has forgiven you of? And in that spirit, freshly reminded of that, in a spirit of gentleness, as Paul says in Galatians 6.1, then prayerfully, lovingly talk to another brother or sister who you think is harming and hurting themselves or other people. That's what I think Galatians 6.1 is trying to sum up for us. If you see somebody caught in some sort of troubled situation, 
you who are spiritual, you who have the Spirit in you, I think would be one way, you who are keeping in step with the Spirit, based on what he said in Galatians 5. So those of us who have the Spirit of forgiveness fresh in our hearts, how can you not extend that to other people knowing how much God has forgiven for you? This is the very core of the gospel, is it not? This is what we mean by the gospel-empowered spirit for how we live all of our lives. Embassy Church, all of us need to do some heart-level work with these kind of questions. I'm sure you could come up with more of them. Hopefully that's just getting the ball rolling and in our conversations throughout the week and hopefully weeks to come, we will continue to think about this issue and press in on one another with love. I think one way to think about it is this. When we understand the nature of what Jesus did for us on the cross by dying for sinners, all of us stand at the foot of Jesus' cross equal. There's not these various gradations based on the really good, uh, you, were, you were good, but you didn't quite make it, but Jesus gave you the rest of the way. There's this level playing field of, of our weakness and our need for help from God's grace and mercy towards us. None of us are righteous. No, not one. Let's not think of ourselves otherwise. That's a big two by four. That's what you look like. You're hurting people with your boasting, right? If there's anything good in us, If there's any spirit of love and gentleness, it is because God's spirit has made us new, and that is the ability we have to confront each other lovingly. And so my prayer is that God would powerfully pour out his spirit on this church again and again, and hopefully more churches in America, so that hopefully we don't have an attitude and reputation of judgmentalism and hypocrisy, rather one of love. So let's look at verse 6 and consider the last point. I said earlier that I'd like us to repent based on Jesus' teaching here. Jesus is calling us to repent of a condemnation, condemning spirit. Repent of that hypocritical acting like we're somebody that we're not. And third and finally, repent of unloving attitudes and actions towards certain groups of people, outsiders in particular. And so for my point today, I want to illustrate that with the one that the survey said that we are not doing a good job, the LGBT community. So let's read verse 6. And as we dive into this, I want to just be honest that this topic in general has all kinds of challenges and difficulties. There's no way I'm going to satisfy all of your questions or pushbacks. This is why helpful, humble dialogue is really important. And again, hopefully, I'm just getting the ball rolling in a way that Jesus would want. One other caveat is this passage is very widely interpreted by, another, by all kinds of different Bible scholars. So it would be hard-pressed for anybody, including myself, to say this is the definitive interpretation on this teaching. But hopefully you hear me out. Don't judge me, okay? Verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So here's what I want to do to make this point. As I've surveyed at least seven or eight different possible ways to read this, one common interpretation of this verse is that Jesus is saying in verses 1 through 5, don't judge. 
But here in verse 6, he's bringing some balance and saying, well, every once in a while you do need to judge. And every once in a while there's going to be pigs and there's going to be dogs. And those people you need to not, just don't waste your time with. Don't give them the pearl, which oftentimes people interpret as the gospel. Just don't waste your time. They're just going to trample it and they're just going to throw mean, nasty words back to you, and they're not going to appreciate it. So just move on past those people, whoever those dogs and pigs are. So that's why my point was, we should repent as Christians who teach things like that. Unloving attitudes and actions towards certain segments or groups of people that we're calling the dogs and pigs, according to Jesus' parable. So what's an alternative way to read it? And I think it's quite obvious is that, are you putting the emphasis of the teaching here on the animals or the humans. And I think that it, it kind of solves things quite nicely if you just look at the human, okay? He's, he's teaching to humans. And even though there are connotations, I, I get that. There are good reasons why people from a biblical standpoint have, have at least said, look, pigs are often seen as this unclean people group and they're often associated with Gentiles. Okay, I get, I get all that, right? But my point is, it seems like what Jesus is doing is saying... The person feeding the dogs and feeding the pigs is not giving them what they're supposed to have. They're doing a bad job. So, two reasons to help you see this. Reason number one. In the book of Exodus, there is a teaching that says that when there's unclean food, you should just throw it out and give it to the wild dogs. And it could be that that's what Jesus is referring to here. The second reason I think this interpretation makes the most sense is because it seems like the passage is in what I would call the sandwich form. So two pieces of bread, peanut butter, jelly in the middle. See it yourself. First piece of bread is dogs. Second piece of bread is attack. Now it could be that these are wild boars and he's talking about pigs attacking you too, but that again seems less likely. So the sandwich pieces are don't give dogs what is holy. Remember Exodus, you're supposed to give them what is unholy, the unholy foods. Otherwise, they'll turn and attack you. Peanut butter and jelly is in the middle, and that's do not give pearls before pigs lest they trample on the pearls. And they match better when you look at it as that sandwich structure, which is a very common way for Jewish people to write little proverbs and poems and things, which is exactly what this is. It's a little proverb poem. So what's the takeaway for us? I think what he's trying to encourage us to do is not, let's, let's identify certain people as dogs and pigs. Now, by the way, I, I'm lumping in the LGBT because of the introduction that I gave, not because I've actually heard Christians call LGBT community, dogs, and pigs. Now, some may have, but that's not the point I'm trying to drive home here. The point I'm trying to drive home is that we should repent of the idea of taking Jesus' teaching and saying, those people, whoever those people are, they're a waste of time. They're gross. They don't deserve the holy food or the valuable pearls of God's kingdom. This, my friends, I think is, is not the heart and attitude of Jesus toward anybody. Think for a moment if that was God's attitude toward you or any of us. Aren't we all kind of a bunch of pigs and dogs in one common sense of the word? People who don't 
treasure and value the things of great value? Don't we trample on the pearl of great price? Didn't God give us the greatest pearl, the most expensive, valuable jewel, his very own son? And what did humanity in general do with Jesus? Trample him. Did you know that when Jesus was on the cross in Psalm 22, the the psalm begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus, as he hangs on the cross, quotes that psalm, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's very common for people to interpret that what he's doing is not just referring to that phrase, but he's referring to the whole poem of David in Psalm 22. And in that poem, it talks about how the dogs come and attack me. So in a real sense, Jesus has been trampled. Jesus has been attacked. And so we should give to people the right thing that is helpful for them. What does a pig want? Pearls? No. What's what's a pig going to do with a pearl? What are dogs supposed to have according to Exodus? They're supposed to have the unholy food. So give the appropriate thing for the appropriate occasion. It's just a a general proverb. I think when we read into it too much, we're like, okay, what's this and what's that? And let's identify this. That's when we get into dangerous teaching, potentially. So let's praise God that he did not look down at humanity on the earth and say, well, you guys are just a waste of time. You're just going to trample my great pearl of of treasure, Jesus, my son. The very heart of the gospel is that more often than not, it is when we're running from God, when we're not ready to hear the great love of Jesus, that it is in those moments that he rescues and redeems and restores and arrests us right there in our tracks. So let's apply that to a particular community that has felt ostracized from the church, the LGBT community. What what do they need? And this is the part of the message where I'm sure there's going to be all sorts of shortcomings, but they certainly need love, the kind of love that we've been describing throughout this whole message. They need listening ears for people who are first going to listen and understand where they're coming from before they make quick judgments and quote them Bible verses. They need people to treat them as people and not as some certain segment of the population and say, oh, you're the dogs and pigs and we're not going to waste our time with you. I do think that people, all people in all groups, need the truth of the image of God teaching about how God has made us in his image and that we will find great joy and restoration when that image is restored through Jesus. And that is, I think, a powerful and loving message to the LGBT community that they are not defined by feelings or perceptions, but rather by the design that God gave them. And I think that even though that is complicated and it's an individual case-by-case thing that we work through from each person and how all the implications of it work out, communicating the message of good news and helpful speech And hopefully a helpful approach is not doing the throwing of pearls before swine, but rather is giving them what they actually need. So let me close with a story that I I think I've shared this once before, but it's a story of how with the LGBT community in particular, this penny, at least for me, dropped. 
And I'm not saying I got it figured out. I'm not saying I'm an expert. I'm just saying I feel like there was a moment where God, through his spirit, gave me some clarity on how to hopefully dialogue about Jesus with the LGBT community. And as I do that, I want to say that in general, it seems like the conversation is often only affirmation with everything that goes on with that community or only alienation. And hopefully what we can come to is, as Jesus so often does, is a better third way. And so hopefully this story can illustrate that. So many of you know, even though I have hardly drunk more than five to six cups of coffee in my whole life, I worked at a Starbucks as a barista while I was going through uh, my master's program for theology to better study the Bible. And I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time, and I was in one of the busiest and largest Starbucks in Washington, D.C. And it was open 24 hours, and it was constant. And so I had a lot of coworkers because it was just, you know, just constant turnover of people. And I am pretty sure this is not an overestimation, but it was like me and two other people of the maybe 15 to 20 baristas. We were like the only ones that weren't in the LGBT community. And so I had a lot of interactions, kind of for the first time in my life, with just every day interacting and spending time with people in that community. And as they got to know me, they knew that I was studying for school at the time to be a, a Bible pastor. And I went to church and I was a Christian. And so it, I had some people that, honestly, I think quickly judged me and didn't get to know me and said, oh, you're a Christian. Yeah, my parents were Christian and, and they hate me and I don't ever want to talk to you. Like, okay. Um, but others, we just got to know each other throughout working together. And if you all know that right around 2010, a big decision was made where there was legalization of same-sex partners to get married. And there were two co-workers that were dating at the time, and they decided to get married. And one of them came up to me after the marriage and said, Phil, do you think that I'm going to go to hell? How about that for hello? And this was one of those moments where, again, I, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, where I really felt like the spirit of Jesus just gave me a response that opened up a dialogue that was, I thought, fruitful. And I just immediately turned to the plank in my own eye, and I said, listen, I think that I deserve to go to hell because I'm a broken sinner. And I think before we talk about you and whatever else, let me just share with you why I don't think I deserve any sense of God's kingdom and his love and his righteousness. And in that moment, I felt what was very much a, a, a tense kind of conversation, and the walls kind of broke down, and we then started dialoguing a little bit about why I think a message of love and grace and reconciliation and forgiveness was the most powerful thing in my life. And I said, listen, my sin struggles are not your issues and whatever you've got going on, but here's what I do know. I, I do know that Jesus wants to love and redeem all of us to be more like him. And I want to encourage you to embrace the way of Jesus. And now she didn't like stop right then and there and fall down on her face and say, it's not one of those stories. But I, I will say we had a good conversation then. And I, I do know that she had several follow-up conversations because I was at somebody else's, um, an, another Starbucks store, and I was meeting up with someone and I saw her there and she was meeting with one of my fellow church members 
and they were studying the Bible together, and I'm like, wait, what in the world's going on? Last time I talked to you, you're like asking me if you're going to hell, and then so I don't know where she's at. I've not been able to keep in touch. We've since moved away. But I know for me, that was a powerful moment for me to not respond with, yeah, you're going to hell. Of course. You just got married to somebody who's of the same gender, you know, or something along those lines. And um, I think that's part of what Jesus is trying to get at, is for us to see, let's look at that first, then let's talk together. And so I would hope that that becomes more and more the norm here, and let's pray that God makes that the norm all over this country. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I want to give you thanks for the love of Jesus. I want to thank you for his teaching and his ways. I want to thank you for the beauty of them, how timely and helpful they are for the current cultural climate that we live in. I want to thank you that you have preserved for yourself this word. And although there are thousands upon thousands of questions and issues that we need to wrestle with, I pray, God, that we would take the principles of what we heard today and just do it with such a spirit of love and humility and understanding. As Jesus' half-brother said so poignantly, God, I want to pray that we would be quick to listen, that we would be slow to speak, and that we would be slow to become angry and condemn people. Would that spirit so typify Embassy Church, God? Oh, what a glorious place this would be if there was this church and multiple others all around here where people stopped saying Christians are just judgmental hypocrites. So God, we confess our failures and our need for you, and we do that now as we take the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, to illustrate all that we've just talked about, I would